they can also have low grades of bone marrow edema. And the same with enthesitis. You know, it's one of the domains in grappa, but at what point it becomes abnormal on the ultrasound is a bit challenging to say. So you do pick up a little bit of Doppler signal with mechanical enthesitis. Where along the spectrum the patient fits in can be challenging, and I think it's a bit of an evolution to know what is normal and what's abnormal. So one of the big advantages of our clinic is that it basically allows us to access imaging modalities. That would probably take much longer time in the community otherwise, right? Hi, my name is Jan Dutz. And Hi, my name is Jonathan Chan, and you're listening to the Skin and Joints podcast. All right, so welcome back to the Skin and Joints podcast. This is your co-host, Aaron Sahota. I'm joined today by Taraj Kosaravi, and we're exploring a very interesting topic. Now, this is kind of what the Skin and Joints podcast really is about. Exactly, what it symbolizes. And really bringing together two disciplines, dermatology and rheumatology. We have two guest experts who are going to share a very unique real-world model of care in in British Columbia here in Vancouver, a really cool co-managed clinic. I know you guys... Our listeners are waiting to hear this. We've had a lot of requests for this, and we try to extract as many secrets as we can about how they run their clinic, how they manage their staff, what they're looking at, how much time they take. So Taraj, who are we talking about? Today we have an exciting, exciting podcast. We have renowned psoriatic arthritis experts, Dr. Jan Ditz and Dr. Jonathan Chen who are going to be talking about novel management of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. They have a combined dermatology and rheumatology clinic here in Vancouver. Not only are they going to be talking about their model of care, but also this exciting new study where over 50 dermatologists were involved about PSA screening and catching psoriatic arthritis early in your clinic. So this is a real-world study, and we're basically the first podcast to break the results of this real-world study and how this actually worked in a real clinic environment. This is a follow-up, an extension of our conversation with Dr. Dutz, I guess over a year ago now, when he introduced the whole concept. He was really excited about this new PSA screening project, and he was talking about the validated tools that they deploy and which ones would be feasible in a real-world environment. And now they've actually done it. So uh, stay tuned. We have with us Dr. Jan Dutz, who's a rheumatologist and dermatologist with a special interest in the continuous manifestations of autoimmunity and rheumatic disease. He is head of the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at UBC and senior scientist with the BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Jonathan Chan, another familiar voice to the podcast, who is a rheumatologist here in Vancouver, BC. He has a focus on the areas of axial spondyloarthritis as well as psoriatic arthritis. He's been involved with research on early identification, long-term outcomes, radiographic progression, and the use of administrative databases. He's involved in SPARC as well as clinical trials, evaluating the efficacy and safety of new therapies in inflammatory arthritis. Here's a conversation with Dr. Yandutz and Dr. Jonathan Chen. Dr. Chen, tell us something new about yourself, something that the audience may not know about you, a special hobby or, or talents. So my new hobby has been, uh, I've been starting doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So my kids have been doing it for a little while and they've started competing. And it's something that I've always wanted to do. I've been a huge fan of MMA since uh, pretty much undergrad. It's just been hard on the schedule, but now that the adult classes are the same time as my kids' comp classes, I get to go and it is a rabbit hole because there is so much to learn and you could spend... You could do it every single day for, you know, for 10 years and still be learning lots of things. My wife describes it as my new obsession. And then how about you, Dr. Dutz? Last time you talked about the accordion, yes. Yes, my musical taste. So this time I'll talk to you a little bit about my experience in sports. 
So I have to say, when I was in high school, I was a competitive swimmer. But swimming is a sport that's well subscribed. So there's a lot of competitive swimmers, especially in Ontario. And the highest I ever managed to get was, I guess, eighth in Ontario in something called the backstroke. But to get carded, which means to get the government, the provincial government, to pay for you to go to international meets and national meets, you have to be in the top uh, five or something like that. So I didn't meet that bar. My brother and I both decided we have to look at oddball sports. You mean Brazilian jiu-jitsu? <laughs> jiu-jitsu did not meet the bar back in the 70s. No one knew about it. So we became aficionados of a sport called orienteering. And so I'll... No, not explain it. You can look it up. It's also called cunning running. So that's... You mean like professional treasure hunting? <laughs> Anyways, uh, I enjoyed that a lot. And we got to travel all over the country and to meets in the United States. And uh, we had a lot of fun with that. We were swimming about four hours a day, yeah, two hours in the morning, two hours after school. And so it was one of those sports that takes a lot of time, actually. Almost as much time as hockey. I'm a swimmer as well. I used to be on the high school swim team. Uh, it's definitely a bit of a process, and I think uh, the next time we'll, uh, we'll broadcast live from the Aquatic Center at UBC. <laughs> uh, so it'll be Dr. Dutes versus Aaron Sahota versus Taraj. <laughs> Maybe we'll get John in there too, uh, lane number four. I'm sure some of our guests literally just tuned into the podcast at the beginning just to learn about the secret skill or talents of some of our uh, guest experts. And then they stopped listening after the first question. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, moving on, you guys both have a very unique model of care that has been designed to really bridge gaps in real-world practice for patients with psoriatic disease. And we're talking about a collaborative, multi-specialty co-management clinic. From a physician's perspective, tell us a little bit more about the clinic. How do patients find the experience? Because I'm thinking about the patient impact. They have a skin disease. They don't know that their joints could be linked to their skin disease. So the patient might realize that their back was hurting all this time or a set of joints was hurting and didn't know it could be related, for example. Have you had some of those aha moments uh, from patients? And what's been the response and feedback thus far? So, I mean, dermatology can be a bit of a black box for a lot of rheumatologists. With the combined clinic, it's been super helpful to have an expert dermatologist come in there and confirm things. So an example of where it was super helpful, I had a patient who I inherited from another rheumatologist who had joint aches, and they had some back pain. The MRI was a bit equivocal. Their GP said they had psoriasis for many years. And I can't really tell the difference, despite the fact that I've done this clinic for many years with Jan. And so this, the previous rheumatologist started them on a biologic, and they get you know 20%, 30% better. So they try the second one and the third one. And so I, I get the patient into the combined clinic, and I see them with Jan, and he has a look, and he says, no, that was just numular dermatitis. And now the whole diagnosis falls apart, and we stop all the biologics, and we're treating their fibromyalgia now. So, you know, it's an area that's been super helpful for me. I think we also get a lot of referrals from other clinicians, because different treatments for psoriatic arthritis can affect certain organs better than others. And there's always considerations that we have to take into consideration. Uh, and it's not always intuitive when we're in our own silo. So I have to say, I've learned a lot from Jan. I don't know if he's learned anything from me, but I have to say I've learned a lot. <laughs> How often do you guys meet for this clinic? And do you involve other allied healthcare professionals like nursing staff? So yeah, we got a nurse that helps us and we run the clinic on average about once a month. So one afternoon a month and we tee up our patients. I say probably about a third of them are patients that are our own patients, where we want an opinion of our colleague on that. 
So I bring patients from my clinic, and if there's a question about axial disease or axial back pain, how to manage, because there's inflammatory back pain, but we also see questions about non-inflammatory back pain, and that needs to be managed as well. And John's excellent with that. And we have the patients that are diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis or have been treated or have secondary skin problems. So, you know, we still see people with paradoxical psoriasis after TNF inhibitor use or other skin conditions that get worse or don't get better with the biologic. And we need to manage these separately. So it's important that we dive in and that we get these patients on appropriate treatment, at least with regards to their skin. Do you think a model like this could be scaled up? We get a lot of questions, especially from other provinces, about Durham Room collaborations. And I think those listeners are curious about, could something like this be implemented from a broader national perspective? Is it also sustainable from a logistical standpoint, from a time and a billing perspective? I think it depends how you set the practice up. Because these are more complex cases. You can't just go in there, look at the patient for 20 seconds and say, acne, you need Accutane. It takes a little bit more thought. And so in, in a dermatology practice, they're used to plowing through, you know, 100 plus patients per day. In our clinic, we're taking, you know, at the minimum 15 minutes, sometimes 30, 40 minutes. And so it may be difficult to f- slot that in a average dermatology schedule. I know both of you guys have been working for a number of years. Do you still find diagnosing psoriatic arthritis quite challenging and, and managing that as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, John can speak to it probably more because he's our designated expert for for joint diagnosis. But we see a lot of patients in the dermatology world who have symptoms and may tick some of the boxes of the PSA algorithm. For example, I guess pain, swelling, axial symptoms, but don't necessarily fit full CASPER criteria. And they still need to be managed. They still need to be slotted and diagnosed and managed. Even if you just have one or two joints, if you have tendinopathy, It can be injected, which a a rheumatologist, of course, can do with ease, whereas that's not in our wheelbox. And dermatology doesn't feel comfortable necessarily uh, prescribing non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So if someone that comes with a single digit inflamed, uh, they still need to be managed, as in PSA. Does it meet all the criteria? How do you manage it? We still have to figure out how to manage those, although most of those patients probably manage very well with just non-steroidals and some advice on how to protect the joint and maybe an injection here and there. Yeah, so I'd also say there's those definite cases where they come into the office and the med student can say something's abnormal there. And then there's challenging cases, which can be uh, difficult because patients have multiple domains that are involved. They might have bad IBD or uveitis or psoriasis or spinal pain. And sometimes you can't just find one drug that'll uh, treat everything. So, you know, we've had a couple cases where we've combined different biologics, a JAK inhibitor plus 23 or 17. And from also from a diagnostic perspective, there are people who are borderline cases, you know, not quite abnormal, but you're not exactly sure uh, whether it truly represents inflammatory arthritis. Some of the other advantages in rheumatology have been imaging modalities. So now we have MRI, particularly for looking at uh, bone marrow edema of the SI joints and uh, MSK ultrasound. I think that's been particularly helpful. But we are still learning as it goes because a lot of these imaging modalities are a lot more sensitive than <clears throat> than we realized. For MRI, we used to use a cutoff of two bone marrow edema lesions on one slice or one on a consecutive slice. But we've realized that about a quarter of mechanical back pain patients also have that too. Or uh, patients who have uh, pregnancy or hypermobility uh, or trauma, they can also have low grades of bone marrow edema. And the same with enthesitis, you know, it's one of the domains in grappa, 
but at what point it becomes abnormal on the ultrasound is a bit challenging to say. So you do pick up a little bit of Doppler signal with mechanical enthesitis. So where along the spectrum the patient fits in uh, can be challenging. And I think it's a bit of an evolution to know what is normal and what's abnormal. So one of the big advantages of our clinic is that it basically allows us to access imaging modalities. That would probably take much longer time in the community otherwise, right? Yeah, you get to learn from each other. I think it's kind of a neat cross-disciplinary conversation. Let's reflect on the dermatologist. I think this is definitely an unmet need, potentially, that you might see with your dermatology colleagues, Dr. Dutes. And uh, Dr. Chan, you can chime in as well. But looking at validated tools and screening tools specifically for psoriatic arthritis, it's always been an interesting discussion. Because you hear about barriers to adoption, specifically when they should be deployed, whether they should be deployed at the initial visit, should it be at follow-up. When you think of workflow, where do you think validated screening tools for PSA, like a PEST tool, where do you think it can be best fit and tucked in and the patient journey? Where is the optimal place in your mind? for something like this. So as you know, Novartis has helped us look at different tools that we've evaluated as a community of dermatologists. Three different tools, and the simplest one that has good sensitivity and specificity seems to be the PEST tool. That's a reasonable tool to start to use in terms of validation uh, in using it in a dermatology clinic. We've also looked at different strategies of uh, applying it in a dermatology clinic. You know, have someone fill in the questionnaire while they're waiting, do it in the office during the interaction, or even send it to them electronically. We've looked at those things, and in the experience of the standard dermatologist in Canada, the simplest thing seems to be to do this during your interaction with the patient, uh, especially because not all patients have psoriasis, and when they come in, you can fill it out. Uh, It becomes otherwise difficult to sort out uh, in advance who to apply it to. In addition, It's important to do this uh, repeatedly, probably about once a year. Uh, At least in Britain, with the NICE guidelines, they've decided that this should be done once yearly. We know, of course, that there's a significant delay between the onset of psoriasis and the onset of psoriatic arthritis. That that delay, on average, is about eight years. And it can even be 10 years or more. So the real problem is that, you know, we treat the skin with uh, topicals, with light therapy, even with biologics, and the skin gets better, and then we forget about asking about that association with the joints. And Dr. can you, for the listeners who might not be well aware, can you expand a little bit on what the PEST questionnaire includes? It's a set of five questions that are easily answerable as a sort of yes and no. And there's a little mannequin where the patient can indicate where they're having pain and discomfort. But practically, it's the five questions that seems to be the most important. I mean, that's what we do. We don't fill out the mannequin. We don't actually give it to them. So that often that falls by the side. Now, the one thing that this questionnaire seems to miss from time to time is axial disease, because there's no specific question for that in the PEST tool. It's incorporated in the mannequin if you click it off in the back, but it's not in the questions. So if you're not having them fill out the mannequin, you probably should add another question to the set of five, which is, do you have back pain? But the truth of the matter is that psoriatic axial disease often begins several years after psoriatic arthritis. And that, again, is on average 10 years. So you're looking at a delay of eight years to get from skin to joint and another delay of 10 years to get from joint to back in that spectrum anyway. So this hasn't been examined yet independently, uh, but it's important for us to ask questions about the back as well. 
And uh, you need to know that people with back pain may have diseases that are different than the psoriatic arthritis spectrum. So John sees a lot of patients with ankylosing spondylitis, which is within the spectrum of diseases of psoriatic arthritis, but somewhat different. They get inflammatory pain in the back first, and then have a higher incidence of eye inflammation or uveitis, have a higher incidence of inflammatory bowel disease. So these people have more systemic disease and often only get psoriasis seven, several years later. And that's a relatively rare case compared to the... Uh... Right. So the march of the disease is somewhat different. And that's a rare thing for us to see as dermatologists. That's what I'm saying. We don't uh, have as much experience with that group as John does. You touched on this maybe briefly, but the consequences of failure to diagnose and effectively treat psoriatic arthritis, what are the consequences? Well, we know that it's uh, from studies done by the rheumatologists in the past uh, 15 years that there's a delay in diagnosis can lead to significant damage and potentially also uh, decreased function. Um, so I would say uh, there was a study by Dr. Haroon and colleagues uh, published five to ten years ago where they showed that a delay of diagnosis of just six months could result in significant changes in long-term function. So we'd like to be on top of this as soon as we can. And I, I think doing a yearly questionnaire is certainly uh, a reasonable intermediate in the whole thing. Do you agree, John? Yeah. And also letting the patient know that if there's a big, hot, swollen joint, you should go seek medical attention. So you know the best value of a questionnaire or raising the question in your office is actually raising the issue uh, in the patient's life so that uh, even if they don't have psoriatic arthritis, then if you ask the question, hopefully they'll remember that, that that's an issue uh, and that there can be an association. And if something happens, that they should go and see someone. And you touched on this, both of you, that the pest doesn't include, you know, actual disease. Are there any other questions other than back pain that a dermatologist should ask or symptoms that they should be aware of that might point towards axial disease and, and psoriatic arthritis? Um, I think John can give us a list of the classic questions that he asks for inflammatory back pain. So the typical questions we ask for axial spondylitis would be age of onset, was it insidious, so did it develop over seconds to hours, or was it weeks to months? Uh, did they have prolonged morning stiffness? Does it get better with activity? Does it get better or worse with rest? Does it wake you up from sleep, causing you to get out of bed? Do you get alternating buttock pain, so sometimes on the right, sometimes on the left? Does it respond to anti-inflammatories? And other ones that sometimes can rule out or lean away from would be radicular pain, so pain shooting down the leg to the foot. And now all of these have been validated for axial spondyloarthritis. We don't know if this also applies to psoriatic arthritis. And so this huge um, research agenda is to look at what is the difference between AXPA and axial psoriatic arthritis. And we're still discovering that as we go along. So, so the message is that there's a defined cassette of questions for ankylosing spondylitis, but we're still learning more about axial psoriatic arthritis, at least from the large cohort studies like corona. It seems that patients vary a little bit in the way they present and in the symptoms they have. The patients with axial psoriatic arthritis tend to be more achy in general uh, and unfortunately more fibromyalgia-like and tend to have problems more with the uh, upper spine compared to the lower spine. Those are some of the differences that are now sort of being teased out. Would you agree? Yeah, and they also tend to have more joint pain. They also tend to have more severe disease. So that's psoriatic arthritis patients with axial disease. 
there's some thought as to whether there's different phenotypes. So those who present younger may behave a bit more like ankylosing spondylitis patients. And they tend to have a bit more B27, younger age of onset. And then there's the older population might have more osteophytes and chunkier ones too. Some people wonder whether that could just be a variant of DISH as well. Uh, and then there's also those who present with only spinal disease and spare the SI joints. And that's kind of an area that we really don't understand a whole lot about. So DISH is diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis. It's an abbreviation for an observation and something that we see with increased frequency also in people with psoriasis. So uh, essentially it's increased bone deposition uh, in the spine on x-ray that has functional consequences. And that sort of, again, is separate, and we're trying to understand how it integrates with ankylosing spondylitis, because it's a different pattern, right? And psoriatic arthritis. So shifting to, aka the PSA project, or PSD project, as I like to call it. We had Dr. Dutz initially introduce it over a year ago. I remember it was a nice, hot August day. We were recording in a studio. I found this project very novel. It looked at deploying real-world validated tools and comparing practically to what dermatologists found most useful. So this project looked at a spectrum of validated tools. Dr. Dutz, could you give an overview of a summary of what the results from the PSA project essentially demonstrated from a real-world lens? Sorry to leave you guys hanging. We did that on purpose. Join us next week for part two of our conversation with Dr. Dutz and Dr. Chan. You guys forgot to mention, just like every other episode, a reminder, we kinda have to say this, the opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and intended for healthcare providers, and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thank you to Novities for supporting today's episode. Let's chat soon.